This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week, our dinosaur of the day is Miragaya, and we have a bunch of dinosaur news. But first, we want to give a big thank you to a few of our patrons, specifically Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, and the Georges family. Thank you so much for your support. We really appreciate it and it really helps us uh, stay motivated to do this podcast. Yep. And we keep considering potentially branching out into new podcasts or things like that, making more videos. And the support we get on Patreon really helps us to fund that kind of stuff. Yeah. Plus, we like giving back to our listeners. So if you want to check out our reward tiers, then look at our page at patreon.com slash I know dino. And we're still hoping when we get to $200 to send stickers out to everybody. So if you're interested in that, Make sure you get in before we hit that level. So jumping right into the news, there's a new titanosaur that was discovered in northeastern Brazil. And I've been really pleasantly surprised with all the Brazilian finds recently, considering how much of the country is covered in vegetation, like the Amazon rainforest. <laughs> Although I haven't seen any lately that were found in the Amazon. It's usually in more dry parts of the country, which makes sense. But this new titanosaur is called... Triumphosaurus leonardi, and the genus name is after Triumpho Basin, where the bones were found, and is mostly known for tracks and other ichnofossils, meaning trace fossils of dinosaurs, and it tends to be a pretty bad place to find bones. They tend to be a little bit broken up, and you don't usually get a nice articulated skeleton, and that's the case this time, too. The species name of Triumphosaurus leonardi, so the leonardi part, is named after Giuseppe Leonardi, a local paleontologist who's done a lot of work in that basin and the surrounding area. So Triumphosaurus is from the early Cretaceous, roughly 145 to 131 million years ago, and that potentially makes it the oldest known titanosaur. And as usual for a titanosaur, they didn't find the skull, but instead of the typical leg bones that we see found, especially in Argentina, they found a few vertebrae and parts of the hips. Now, those aren't the bones that are really the best for making size estimates, but based on their simplified silhouette in their paper, I kind of measured out against their scale, <laughs> and it looked like it's about 18 meters-ish or about 60 feet 
long, or at least in that ballpark. You know, it's not 100 feet long and it's not 20 feet long. It's kind of a medium-sized titanosaur. I guess that makes sense if it's pretty old. Yeah, that they weren't getting huge. But it is considered closely related to an Argentinosaurus, which was apparently one of the biggest titanosaurs. And it was also closely related to our recent dinosaur of the day, Malawisaurus. And since it's so similar in size to Malawisaurus, most of what we said about Malawisaurus is probably also true for Triumphosaurus. So you can go back and listen to some details about Malawisaurus if you're wondering what this guy was up to. The one potential downside to Triumphosaurus being so much older than most titanosaurs is that it might actually be a sauropod that's just outside the group that we call titanosaurs. So it would be something like a titanosauromorph or something. But it's kind of hard to tell from the few bones that we have. So we're going to have to hope to find more bones and then we'll be able to more closely identify if it's a titanosaur and where it fits in the tree. It's kind of the case for a lot of titanosaurs, right? Yeah. You find more bones. And just dinosaurs in general, like at SVP last year, they were saying it's really difficult to do these cladograms and phylogenetic analysis with just one species and one sample of a species. But a lot of times that's all we have. So you kind of have to work with what you got. Next up, we've got some more evidence of preserved collagen, but this time it's in an early Jurassic sauropodomorph dinosaur revealed by synchrotron FTIR microspectroscopy. I always love a good synchrotron. You've probably heard me ramble about it before. <laughs> so sauropodomorphs, you probably remember, are the opposite end of titanosaurs. Rather than the very end of sauropods, they're right in the beginning. So they were kind of transitioning from bipedal to quadrupedal. So they kind of have hand slash feet forelimbs. And this guy is no different. Specifically, we're talking about Lafungasaurus that Sabrina and I got a chance to see one of at the Hong Kong Museum of Natural History. And there's a pretty good sample size of them in China. So it's a relatively common Jurassic sauropodomorph. And it's more than twice as old as the Brachylophosaurus that we talked about the collagen being recovered from two weeks ago. Specifically, the bone is estimated to be about 195 million years old, which is pretty remarkable. And they sliced into it to get at the inner structure and potentially the preserved chemicals inside the rib. Immediately, they saw small black circles that they believed were vascular canals. And that's essentially like blood vessels that run through a bone. And they also saw fragments of a transparent material that they believed could have been collagen that was washed out of the canals during the cutting and polishing process. So they had to do a bunch of analysis, obviously, to back this up. So they did a lot of different kinds of microscopy to kind of visualize it. But then they also analyzed the bone with synchrotron FTIR, Raman spectroscopy, and transient absorption microscopy. We've talked about all those before, so I'm not going to bore anybody who's not as into the minutia as I am. And all the techniques seem to point towards the recovery of collagen. So the researchers believe that the collagen may have survived for almost 200 million years by being surrounded by hematite that likely formed from the dinosaur's blood around the collagen. The iron in the blood 
may have prevented oxidation of the collagen as well as serving as a sort of antimicrobial barrier. <laughs> so it's a pretty cool coincidence that that seemed to work out. They couldn't recover any collagen from the general bone matrix, which is also kind of good evidence that the iron in the blood vessels was protecting these little pieces of collagen there rather than some other effect protecting the collagen that would have also included the bone around it. It would be nice if they could add some mass spectrometry data to confirm their results or maybe some other kind of analysis because, as Mary Schweitzer said, talking about their data, quote, synchrotron data is very powerful, but it's limited, end quote. And we've talked a little bit about the limitations before and how it can be a little bit affected by contamination, so it's nice to get multiple types of analyses in. And... If they're right about their findings, their final statement is pretty amazing. Quote, this finding extends the record of preserved organic remains more than 100 million years, end quote. And that's pretty awesome considering we had only gone back about 80 million years before, so. It's hard to fathom. Yeah. <laughs> like 80 million years, it's hard to wrap my head around and then you more than double that. Yeah, it's like how we often talk about how dinosaurs were around for such a long period that the earliest dinosaurs and the last dinosaurs were farther apart than the last dinosaurs and people. Yeah. <laughs> and this is kind of another example of that. You go back another hundred million years from this significant dinosaur discovery and you're still discovering stuff about dinosaurs. <laughs> but yeah, it's amazing that that kind of stuff can get preserved for such a long time. Yeah. Makes me hopeful about what else they might be able to find. <laughs> yeah, if anything, the last, what, five, ten years, maybe even a little longer, there's just been so much that people are finding and researching and learning. Yeah, and coming up with ways to use all this new technology on this super old material. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's exciting. So next we have an update on the land near Dinosaur Ridge in Colorado. It has been approved for rezoning, according to CBS Denver. And we've talked about this story before and how there were protests and people dressed in dinosaur costumes for those protests. The rezoned land will have some commercial development and the company Three Dinos will be developing it, which That's is super, pretty funny. Super ironic name for a <laughs> development company. Yep. Yeah. From what I remember, the development isn't actually going to directly affect any dinosaur fossils. It's just going to be really close to a dinosaur park. So it was more of a complaint about the appearance of the area and, you know, looking natural, kind of like a park rather than looking like a commercial complex. So I guess the one bright side is that hopefully, you know, we're not losing any good paleontological data there. Next, thanks to Patrick, who shared this one with us via Facebook. The Petroleum Exploration Society of Great Britain announced dates and speakers for the Geoliteracy Festival 2017. The festival is from April 8th through April 15th, and the speaker this year is Ken Lacovara, who has discovered Dreadnoughtus, and he uses 3D technologies to study dinosaurs, as many paleontologists do now. He's also responsible for creating Rowan University Fossil Park in New Jersey, where kids get to learn about dinosaurs, and we've talked a bit about that before. And the festival consists of national outreach events in Great Britain. So it's going to be held in Kimmeridge Bay, Lyme Regis, London, Birmingham, Aberdeen, and Edinburgh. 
Next up, we got a message from Brendan via Facebook. He said, Hey guys, I have a random question for you. Do you know if any dinos hopped like kangaroos? Just saw a video of a small bird on a moving walkway at an airport, and watching it hop made me wonder if any theropods moved the same way. With a tail to offset the basic build of many theropods, seems potentially conducive to this. Perhaps muscle attachments and bone shape could be a way to see if any did this? Enjoy the rabbit hole, Garrett. (laughs) And he did. (laughs) It did send me down a rabbit hole. Because these types of questions are not something you can just look up in a book. And I did try. I looked in the index of all the dinosaur books I have for hopping behavior, but there wasn't anything. Maybe we should compile these someday. (laughs) Crazy rabbit holes about dinosaurs. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So to answer the question, I started with a different question. Why do birds hop? To look for any kind of similarities to dinosaurs. And I found a really helpful essay from Stanford where they point out that birds on branches often hop when it's too narrow to walk. And then when on land, birds with shorter legs seem to hop a lot more often. And they said, quote, the evidence seems to point to economy of effort. Short-legged birds move farther in a single hop than they do taking several steps, whereas it is more economical for larger birds with longer strides to move one leg at a time. So that kind of makes sense. You know, if you have really short legs, but you're good at hopping and walking is going to be a pain, (laughs) might as well just hop around. I was just thinking the difference between how I walk and how you walk. (laughs) Yeah. I was thinking about little dogs too, because aren't there some dogs that only use like three of their legs when they're running quickly or something? I have no idea. Yeah. It kind of makes sense. But they did say that even with that characteristic, quote, A hopper in a hurry tends to break into a run. (laughs) So that made me think of those snowy plovers and some of those birds you see running down the beach Mm -hmm. with their little legs moving so fast you can barely see them. But that obviously takes a lot more energy than little hops, I guess. So given that non-avian dinosaurs tended to be pretty leggy, I wouldn't really expect them to hop much based on that information. You know, they tend to have pretty long legs. I was looking for an example of a short-legged bipedal dinosaur and one of the examples people give is spinosaurus and even spinosaurus had pretty long legs especially compared to some of these birds so yeah and i wouldn't really imagine spinosaurus hopping around probably not sure but then the other way to look at it is by looking at trackways so to date there isn't any trackway of a hopping dinosaur they basically all have alternating prints just like you'd expect from an animal walking or running There is one possible exception where alternating prints seem to be followed at the end by a hop, but that's not really what we'd expect from a kangaroo-like hopper. You know, it looks more like it was going to hop onto something or hop over something. But that's not to say that this couldn't happen. It's really impossible to prove that something never existed, and there are lots of dinosaurs that haven't been discovered yet, and like we've said before, there's lots of dinosaurs that we will never discover just because of the habitat they lived in. And it's hard to tell exactly how dinosaurs were using muscles based on just the attachment points in their legs. Because like we were saying, there are birds that hop pretty frequently, but then can also run. So they obviously have musculature that can do both. And then really the only way we'd be able to tell for sure is if we found a trackway that showed 
pretty much hopping kangaroo-like dinosaur prints, that would be the way to know for sure. So I kind of hope we do find that. That would be really cool if we found like some compsognathus-sized little theropod with hop marks along a beach somewhere. That would be pretty neat. It's possible. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely possible. Since they lived so long. Yeah, it's a really so long many. time and really diverse group. I just recently found the first burrowing one within the last few years, so why not a hopper? Yep. And we you know, found out that originally we thought a lot of them were aquatic, and then we didn't think any of them were, and then we found some aquatic or semi-aquatic ones again. So their behavior is really up for debate as soon as you find just another fossil. It can really open things up. In other news, in Tucson, the company Geodecor has opened a showroom to the public, and it's open between, well, it opened January 27th, and it's open until February 12th, as part of the Mineral and Fossil Co-op. So Geodecor collects and sells fossils to collectors in museums. The showroom is about 4,000 square feet, and it houses a skeleton of a 26-foot-long triceratops, whose nickname is Bob, <laughs> two mammoth skeletons, and a T-Rex skull. Fossils start at $500, but Bob costs $1.2 million. <laughs> and the showroom is open from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. That is expensive. Mm-hmm. So that's a cast of Bob, right? Or is that actual Bob? It was unclear. Okay. That's probably actual Bob, actually. Because I think you can get a, a nice replica for under $100,000. Never had the funds, so I didn't really look <laughs> into it. <laughs> Just when we were talking with, with uh, Brad Jost on the Jurassic Park podcast and some of the really expensive, outlandish gift ideas, I think we saw an Acrocanthosaurus for like 36000 or something. <laughs> yeah, good gift. Yep. If you ever go fossil hunting and you come across a bone and you don't know what it is, there's a new website called boneid.net that its goal is to help anyone, regardless of their background, identify bones. So you can browse categories to narrow down a bone you found based on location, or they can help you contact a professional to help analyze your bone, as long as it's not a human bone, in which case they advise you to contact your local law enforcement. <laughs> the database is meant to make it easy for people to identify bones they find and to foster community around people who are interested. So far, the database has 35 species displayed via 990 images, and it's growing. So it might not be too too helpful right now but in the future when their database is larger it could be yeah it reminds me when they say contact law enforcement of a certain hominid that was discovered in washington state and they called law enforcement because they found this bone that looked like a person that might have been killed but it turned out to be like a you know super ancient like millions of year olds it's a cold case <laughs> yeah very very cold Next up, thanks to Patrick for sharing this with us on Facebook. There's a new course on edx.org by the University of Hong Kong called Dinosaur Ecosystems. And the course focuses on part of the Gobi Desert in early on China, which is by the border with Mongolia. It's like right by the border, like a few feet away from the border. It's crazy. They showed it on a map. Anyway. They also visit various museums like the American Museum of Natural History throughout the course to kind of give you an overview of some of the different dinosaurs and ecosystems that went on back in the Cretaceous. That's cool. Yeah. 
And the course is designed to be six weeks long, and it's mostly composed of short videos with simple multiple choice answers after the videos. And it looks like there's some longer answers you can give at the end of chapters. So like at the end of the week, I haven't gotten to the end of a week yet, so <laughs> I haven't tried them out yet. And I think you could probably skip it if you don't want to go through all the grading process. The course is in English, but it also has subtitles available in Mandarin, both traditional and simplified, which I was thinking might be a good way to learn Mandarin since that's something we've been trying to do. <laughs> you could learn how to say all the dinosaur names before anything else. <laughs> that's useful. It's the important stuff, really. <laughs> The course is led by Dr. Michael Pittman and Dr. Xu Xing, who we've talked about quite a bit on the podcast before because he's... We've met him. Yeah. And he's an author on a ton of papers in China. You can take the course for free or you can pay $50 for a certificate. So it's pretty similar to those University of Alberta Coursera courses. And I've started taking it for free and it's been really great so far. They've got lots of information. It's well produced. It keeps you engaged because it does short little like five to 10 minute videos. And then they ask you a couple questions about it. And then you kind of switch gears often. So you're not falling asleep like you would be watching a lecture potentially. So I'll report back my progress and let you guys know how good it is. I definitely recommend it though, if you're at all interested in trying a dinosaur class. This one starts pretty much at the beginning with the difference between Ornithischians and Saurischians and kind of the history of some of the dinosaur explorers and all that kind of process. So I really recommend it so far. Patrick also sent us a free course on Future Learn that's about the world's previous five mass extinctions, as well as the one that humans are currently causing. Oops. <laughs> And a separate paid paleontology overview course on the great courses. Well, also just a lot of great courses links. They all looked good. Yeah. February 3rd would have been Gideon Mantell, who named Iguanodon, would have been his birthday, according to Everything Dinosaur. And he was a doctor and amateur geologist who had a rivalry with Richard Owen. He spent a lot of time studying fossils, and he identified the teeth of Iguanodon after he compared it to the teeth of a living iguana. At the time, he estimated Iguanodon to be 100 feet long. He thought it was 20 times the size of a modern 5-foot-long iguana, and he thought the modern iguana was a living relative. This, as we know now, turned out to be incorrect. Iguanodon was about 30 to 33 feet or 9 to 10 meters long, but it got a lot of people interested in dinosaurs. And we cover Iguanodon in depth in episode 87, but if you're near West Sussex, England, you can see a memorial to Gideon Mantell in the village Cuckfield, where lots of Iguanodon fossils were found. And of course, we've got a couple of stories of people walking around in dinosaur costumes. So there's one dinosaur who showed up at the Grimsby Convention in the UK, according to Grimsby Telegraph. There's a video of someone in a velociraptor suit. It's one of the big heavy ones where you kind of have to hunch over because it sticks out behind you and in front of you yeah and in the video there's a little girl petting the velociraptor <laughs> she seems a little bit nervous <laughs> but a woman dressed as Belle from beauty and the beast is standing next to her encouraging the girl so she does it she seems very brave <laughs> what is this grinsby convention that has bell and velociraptor and some kind of comics thing oh okay <laughs> but i don't know why 
Bell was there. Kind of like Comic-Con where it just kind of brings in any costume that you could possibly think of. Yeah, I don't know the details. I've never been. And in other costume news, the Coffs Coast advocate in Australia shared a story about Reginald the dinosaur who walks the streets to, quote, spread laughter and joy among locals. So it's a 12-year-old boy who came up with this idea, and he got one of those inflatable T-Rex costumes as a Christmas present. There's a video of him walking around and taking pictures with people and shaking hands, and he seems to be getting some laughs, and people seem joyful, so that's good. Next, thanks to Deborah, who shared this one with us via Facebook. On Etsy, Design Girl crochets dinosaurs hatching out of eggs. They cost $20 each, but they're pretty cute. She makes a T-Rex, Stegosaurus, Apatosaurus, and Pterodactyl, which we know is not a dinosaur, but still cute. That's kind of cool. I wonder. That must be kind of tricky to crochet. I don't know. Probably. I don't know how to crochet, so it all looks tricky. Yeah. should ask one of my sisters that knows how to crochet. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we can get a custom one from them. (laughs) Next up, the makers of Ark Survival Evolved. They keep popping up in the news. I don't want to act like that's all I do because I haven't even played this game in a month, but they do keep doing new stuff, so I feel the need to mention it. So the makers have added a few new servers that don't let you tame dinosaurs, so it basically removes my favorite part of the game. I think a lot of people's favorite part of the game. Yeah, a lot of people didn't seem... I don't seem, know the thinking behind that. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a great idea, but it's basically just a test to see if people like it, the designer said. And the test servers allow up to 120 players to play in a map with a maximum of 10 people a tribe. And then they give you double experience points and harvesting rate to make up for the lack of dinosaurs that you could use. To then it just becomes like any other farming game or yeah, something. That's right? Well, I mean, there are dinosaurs trying to eat you. Oh, the you dinosaurs hunt. are still there. Okay. Yeah, you just can't tame them. So you can find it by searching for no taming experiment, all one word, if you're tired of living my childhood dream of (laughs) taming a dinosaur and riding it. (laughs) And also in gaming news, Blizzard's massively successful freemium digital card game called Hearthstone is reportedly getting dinosaurs in a new expansion. The news comes from a reported accidental leak from one of the game's voice actresses who apparently voiced a pterodactyl and brontosaurus and then posted that on like a LinkedIn profile and people noticed. (laughs) That's interesting. They got a person to voice the dinosaurs. Well, you got to make the noises, you know. Yeah, but then you think like Jurassic Park, it was a mix of animal noises. Oh, that's true. Yeah. It's a person. Yeah. I wonder if they talk, if they're like fully anthropomorphic. I don't know. I've never played Hearthstone, but apparently it's really popular and everything gets better with dinosaurs, so... We're not biased at all. No. (laughs) (laughs) I think most of the listeners would agree. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. 
And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to the dinosaur of the day, Miragaya, which was a request from Portuguese Eagle via YouTube, so thanks. It was a stegosaurid that lived in the Jurassic in what is now Portugal, and it's named after Miragaya, the parish in Portugal, an area where the fossils were found. The name's also a reference to the word Mira, which means wonderful in Latin, and Gaia, the earth goddess. So the name means basically wonderful goddess of the earth. It was found after a road was built between the villages Miragaya and Sobral, and they found the anterior half and partial skull. The other half was possibly destroyed during construction of the road. It was described in 2009 by Octavio Mateus, Susanna Maidman, and Nikolai Christensen. Miragaya is the first recognized stegosaur skull found in Europe before only bits and pieces had been found. Alberto Cobos and others in 2010 suggested Miragaya was a junior synonym of Decentrurus, which lived in England. The type species is Miragaya longicolum, and the species name means long neck. It was about 18 to 20 feet, or 5.5 to 6 meters long, though Gregory Paul estimated it was 6.5 meters long and weighed 2 tons. And what's interesting about it, it had a very long neck. There were at least 17 vertebrae. And it was part of a trend of longer necks in stegosaurs. So Miragaya is part of the clad Thyreophora, whose older members had nine vertebrae. Then later ones, like Stegosaurus and Hesperosaurus, had 12 to 13 vertebrae. And Miragaya has the longest neck of any stegosaur, and more cervical vertebrae than many sauropods. Yeah, jeez. <laughs> yeah. Its neck vertebrae were longer than vertebrae in other stegosaurs. And so... This longer neck is convergent evolution with sauropod necks lengthening. Neck elongation may occur in three ways. It could be from incorporating dorsal vertebrae into the neck, so like the backbones move forward and became part of the neck, adding new cervical elements to the vertebral column, or lengthening of individual cervical vertebrae. And scientists think that all three of these things led to sauropods having really long necks. 
Because of its long neck, Miragaya may have been able to eat foods other herbivores couldn't reach, so the neck may have also helped them to attract mates, though it's not clear exactly why it had such a long neck. I'm kind of wondering now, though, if dinosaurs hadn't died out, if stegosaurs hadn't died out, if they would have just ended up having as long of necks as sauropods. <laughs> that would be crazy. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> Giraffes are the only living mammals with long necks, and scientists think that that's because long necks attracted mates, which could be the same thing with sauropods. So Miragaya also had long forelimbs, and it had a toothless beak, like Stegosaurus. It had a notch in the snout tip that was shaped like a W. In Stegosaurus, that notch is U-shaped. And it had ornamentation on the upper part of the nasal bone. It had 16 teeth in the maxilla, and it may have used its rear legs to rear up and reach high branches, but that's not known for sure since those bones are missing. It had spikes and plates with eight paired plates, and it had a long, narrow spike that was thought to be a shoulder spine, but now is thought to be part of the tail. The tail, of course, though, is unknown, since that's the half that's missing. You can see a reconstruction of Miragaya at the Museum of Lurinha in Portugal. There's a mix of real fossil and casts. Mirgai is part of the clad Decentrurinae within Stegosauridae, which is a sister group to Stegosaurus, and of course it includes Decentrurus. And our fun fact of the day comes partially from the Dinosaur Ecosystems course that I mentioned earlier. It reminded me that when excavating dinosaur bones, paleontologists often don't have the luxury of collecting everything that they find. And that can be because they have transportation limits because they're in the middle of nowhere and they just physically can't move all of this material. Sometimes there's time restrictions on excavating, so they have to pick and choose which areas to go after and which fossils. And then also there's collection space limitations where there just isn't enough space for box after box of micro fossil and big jacketed chunks of things. So you might have to leave things in the field for a while. So... Instead, what paleontologists often end up doing is selecting the most significant fossils to remove and then leaving the rest for either future paleontologists or future excavations. That's too bad. Yeah, but I mean, how many hadrosaur humeruses do you need? <laughs> All of them, of course. It does help a lot to have a large sample size, which I think is kind of a downside of this because, you know, you get a, a reduced sample size. Everybody wants that new dinosaur and they're not as interested in repeating boring stuff but <laughs> i think part of the selection is how complete the bone is too so if it's just fragments you might leave it compared with if it's a full nice looking bone that isn't all distorted from the fossilization process and things i guess there's other uses like our wedding rings were made <laughs> out of fossils that were too small to be scientifically significant yeah they couldn't even identify like what kind of bone it was they think it's a dinosaur because it's from the right kind of quarry but it's just such a tiny little scrap of nothing <laughs> yeah and that wraps up this episode of i know dino thanks for listening if you want to join fellow dinosaur enthusiasts help us keep this podcast going check out our patreon page at patreon.com slash i know dino thanks again and until next time